So let me add my welcome to the one I hope you just received. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. So glad to be worshiping with you this morning. Maybe I haven't had the chance to meet you. I hope I do at some point and uh, even to take some unhurried time to to hear your story. Uh, But for now, just know that I'm so glad to be here uh, worshiping our Lord, refreshing our hearts in His grace. Uh, Before we turn to the scripture text this morning, let me just give a couple of announcements of some things going on in our community we want you to be aware of. Uh, And the first is Fall Fest, our Fall Festival, which is just an opportunity to gather with Allie Grummer just did a dance which was like this. And that's kind of what Fall Fest is all about. It's just kind of, it's games, it's hay rack rides, it's fun, it's s'mores, it's celebrating God's faithfulness to us. It always happens around Grace Chapel's birthday, which is October 1st. So October 1st, 2000 was Grace Chapel's first worship service. And so uh, we gather together to celebrate. So we're looking for, uh, we're going to provide hot dogs. Everyone brings a side. When I was a single college student before I worked here or anything, freshly in the Lord, I would bring Captain Crunch <laughs> and milk. And here's the th- it would always be gone. You just bring whatever you can and you share it. And then we're also looking for volunteers to provide chili and cinnamon rolls and always looking for help to, to set up and tear down the event as well. So there's more information about that at, uh, on our website. Uh, the other thing we want to make uh, you aware of is the day before is our fall work day. So Saturday, October 7th from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., We always have projects. Uh, We have a big property here, both our grounds and our building, and we want to steward those things well. We also have partners in the neighborhood, um, folks uh, who maybe don't have the, the manpower that we have that have projects around their institution or their house. And so we're looking, uh, we're always looking for volunteers to be able to help uh, our neighbors. This week, I think we're helping our partners at Jacob's Well. Uh, but please come. You could make it a Grace Chapel weekend. The se- Whoa! Uh, big time. Grace Chapel week seven, work day and fall fest? Guys, I can hardly contain myself. <laughs> so uh, mark your calendars there. Um, a sweet thing to worship together. We get a turn our attention to God's Word now. And before we do that, I'm just going to take a moment so we can kind of gather ourselves, take a deep breath, and prepare to receive from God's Word. So let's take that moment now and then I'll pray for us. And gracious Heavenly Father, we take this moment and we exhale and we lean into you and your truth, knowing that it can support our lives. It can support us as heavy, whatever we may be carrying, it can 
lift us up. And so help us to have hearts to receive and ears to listen. We give you praise. God and King, speak to us this morning. Your servants are listening. We speak this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We've been in a long series in the book of Colossians, and we're still kind of in that space, but we're going to take a detour for one week into the book of First Corinthians, and I'll say why later. But we're going to be in, uh, I'm going to re- be reading a couple verses out of First Corinthians chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, I'd just leave them open there because we're going to look at other portions of this chapter uh, throughout the message. But for our scripture reading, just two verses from 1 Corinthians 7, verses 7 and 8. This is God's word. This is Paul speaking as a single man. And he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and to the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll talk about that. Uh, We've been in a series in the book of Colossians, and we came to that portion in Colossians where, uh, uh, if you... If you remember our message from last week, Paul's kind of riffing on this ancient household code uh, that would have been very familiar to the readers of the letter, and he's describing what the Christian household should look like, how the gospel changes the way that husbands and wives and, and kids and parents and servants and masters who would exist in the household in that day relate to one another. Um, And we said we're going to slow down and talk about each of these relationships because they're very, they're very important. And, uh, you know, I I, I went up to my good sister, Linda Reichert, after the the service and I just said, how are you doing? How's the, how are you processing the message from this morning? And she just, uh, dear single woman, and she's just said, well, I'm struggling with it. I just don't see where I fit in this passage. And I get that. Paul doesn't mention in that passage singleness. But it's right for us to stop and consider the single life. Paul, I think, would have commended us for doing so. Because while singles didn't figure into the household code of Rome... Uh, singles figure prominently in the household of God. And they figure prominently in the purposes and plan of God. Simply to remember that when we walk through the book of Colossians, we're walking through a letter that was written by a likely 55-year-old single and celibate man. And so when we're learning about marriage... When we're learning about parenting, when we're learning about the household, 
we're learning from a 55-year-old man who is celibate and has no children. Singles figure prominently into the plan of God. Singleness figures prominently also in every one of our lives. Every one of us has been single. And even if we're coupled at the moment, there's more than a 50% chance that we'll end up single again. And so that thought reminds us that singleness comes in all shapes and sizes. We may be apt to think about the young, single, unmarried person. But singleness is a broad and diverse category of people, covering children, young adults, the widowed, widowers, divorced, those in our community following an orthodox sex ethic of Jesus, but who are in the LGBTQ community, those who feel called to a single life for the purpose of serving the kingdom of God. And amongst all of those singles, the desires vary in terms of marriage. Some very much long to be married. Some long to be remarried. Some feel deeply called to the single life. So wherever we're at, we should just mark in our minds that this makes up a significant and ever-growing part of our church family. And we want to say that God deeply affirms the single life. Even as he calls the singles among us to himself and to submit their singleness to his lordship, even as he asks husbands and wives and kids and parents to submit themselves in whatever season they're in and to put the lordship of Christ at the center of that experience so that they can grow and emulate Christ, he's saying, singles, that's for you too. There is an opportunity for you to become more like Christ and to emulate him. A deep affirmation and challenge for the singles among us. And we hear about that deep affirmation and challenge in First Corinthians 7. So we got a foretaste of it in verses 7 and 8. Uh, but we're going to read a little further now. So I'm going to start by reading 1 Corinthians 7, 27 through verse 29. There Paul says, and we're jumping into the middle of an argument, I can't help it. We can't read it all. We're just going to get into it. He says, are you bound to a wife? So he's... He, He's responding to questions that he received, that the, the church is asking, should we, in light of current circumstances and our faith, should we get married? He says, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. <laughs> and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. 
Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The appointed time has grown very short. All right. So it's a passage that raises a number of questions for us, some of which we won't have a time to answer today. But what I want us to see is that he's asking us to see our lives in light of eternity. Notice that he says that the time has grown very short. And he doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is going to come back in his lifetime or theirs. More likely, he's talking about a coming season of hardship and persecution. Still, while he may not be talking about the second coming, he's saying there's a chance soon that you might meet your maker. So while it may not be that Jesus is coming back tomorrow... He's asking them to live as if he might. This is just a common way of speaking in the New Testament. This is how believers in Jesus are called to live. It motivates our obedience. It puts things into perspective. Jesus talked like this all the time. He would say, keep your lamps burning. You never know when the master's coming. It could be in the middle of the night. He says, I'm coming like a thief in the night. He says, always be prepared. Well, what does that look like? Well, he goes on to tell us. So, um, next verse. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, And those who deal with the world as if they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. Clear as mud, here's what I think he's saying. He is saying that we will marry. We do. And we buy and we sell and we have jobs and we grieve and we mourn and we rejoice. But we're to do all those things in light of the future. It's like this, if you belong to Christ, in the future, God is going to give you ultimate wealth. So now, whether you have money or not, it's not that big of a deal. If you have it, great. Don't be too attached to it. If you don't have money, don't be too upset. It's not the kind of wealth that lasts anyway. You see? So what he is doing, it sounds strange at first. Let those who mourn act as if they weren't mourning? That sounds mean. But what Paul is saying, he's not saying don't weep. What he's saying is don't overdo it. Don't let your tears consume you because you have a great hope of a God who will come and wipe away all tears. It's saying feel free to rejoice, but don't overdo it. Because whatever you're rejoicing in won't last. Real and lasting joy comes with Christ. And that is the joy that will satisfy your heart. And then he applies this ethic to singleness and marriage. He says, if you're married, that's fine. But know that the real, the ultimate wedding is in the future. The wedding supper of the Lamb. 
and that the deepest desire that you have for acceptance, for fellowship, for intimacy, for security, it will only be satisfied fully on that day. No earthly marriage, no earthly family can satisfy those deep longings. Marriage is penultimate. But he's also saying, if you don't have a family, if you don't have a marriage, don't be so upset. If you do have a family, don't be too elated. Don't put all your hopes in it. And this teaching, it feels strange to us. It would have felt strange to the original readers as well. This would have been an absolute bombshell going off in the traditionalist culture, which says you're nothing unless you're marriage. This was a culture where family, the ability to have children and to pass on your name, meant everything. And as a result, marriage and family were idolized. Do we know a culture like that? Where marriage and family can be idolized? Do we not make that mistake sometimes? I think about Disney movies. Where the whole narrative is about finding true love. And once they find love, the story fades. Because that's what the story is about. And it's not just Disney. The message is that what matters in life is finding romance, it's marriage. Everything else in your life is prologue and afterward. The single person is seen as missing out of the essential part of the story of what matters in human life. The picture in Scripture and the one that Paul's painting in 1 Corinthians is different. You don't need marriage to have a life that is thrilling, fulfilling, filled with purpose, and filled with love. Example A, Jesus the Christ. Woven into the very fabric of Christian theology is the insistence that, Je- that Jesus is good. <laughs> that Jesus is the truest and most perfect, most glorious human being that ever lived. And that if someone wants to experience true and full and rich humanness, they should become like him and pattern their life off of his humanity. Here's the thing, he is portrayed in the gospel as compelling, attractive, who engages seriously with people, a person who is good company at a party, and who has not missed out on the heart of life. And all of the evidence that we have is that he lived as a single and celibate man. Does that mean that everyone, if they're going to become like Jesus, needs to live like that? No. But it does mean shifting our modern thinking about marriage and sex. It dislodges this assumption that having those things is necessary to being fully or truly alive. Because if Jesus abstained from those things and he's the measure of what counts 
as true humanity. That means if I am called to something else too for a season or for my life, I will not ultimately lose. Jesus, a deep affirmation of the single life. Example B, the Apostle Paul. If you were going to tell the Apostle Paul that he was not content, he'd have a few verses to share with you that he had written about contentment, about being up and being down and finding the secret of contentment, that he is full of joy. He's the apostle of joy. Rejoice, he tells us, asking for us to enter into a joy that he's found. Well, where does his contentment come from? Well, God gave him a number of things. God gave him relationships. He may have not been married, but God had given him a spiritual family. If you read about Paul's life, he is surrounded by people all the time. Look at the ends of his letters. All the people he knows by name, all the little house churches that he's intimately familiar with. Read the book of Acts. He's always got companions. He never writes a letter alone. He said, I'm here, and so is Sylvanus, and tyrannical, and you know, we have all the, all the weird people he hangs out with. He was single, but he was not alone. God gave him intimacy in a spiritual family. God also gave him purpose. He had a purpose life. He was the greatest missionary that the world had ever known, energized by a vision of God's kingdom and a love of people. Whatever you make of the Apostle Paul, historians will say he lived a purpose life. He changed the world. He had relationships. He had purpose. He wasn't waiting for the the, the core part of the story to happen. He was living it. It gave him relationship, gave him purpose, but that wasn't the most significant thing that God gave Paul. The most significant thing that God gave Paul that led to his contentment was himself. It wasn't his friendships or the spiritual community or his work that sustained his life. It was when Paul met the risen Christ on that road. And he had this vision, this beatific vision of the risen Lord from which he never recovered. He never recovered from seeing the beauty of his Savior. It shifted his vision from horizontal relationships and being defined by them to a vertical relationship and being defined by it. It's something that he called the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And it was that call and that relationship and that vision and that experience that made him content. He needed nothing else. He wanted nothing else. The only thing he wanted was for more people to experience that. And Paul is saying, that's what I would remind you of. That this is the relationship that we were made for. That marriage at its best points us to Christ. Paul will affirm that marriage is good. 
And we'll talk about that next week. But he's quick to remind us here that it is a temporary institution built by God to serve temporary purposes. But when we die, it's done. And for those of us in a bad marriage, we're like, whew, that's good news. And for those of us who are in a good marriage, it's kind of sad. It seems kind of sad right now. But marriage is at its best just a signpost beyond itself to a greater reality. Paul's clear, our marriage will end. He's also clear that on this side of heaven, marriage comes with its own unique set of anxieties, challenges, and hardships. Primarily, it, it divides our attention and our affections. Let's listen to him. He continues on in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to, and this is the line I want you to remember, secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Why am I giving you this teaching? To secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Marriage, the seeking after it, can leave us with a divided heart. Uh, John Newton, the great hymn writer, once wrote about his good marriage. And he said, I have a good marriage, and because of it, I don't lean on Jesus like I would otherwise. I don't always go to Christ to get my love and my satisfaction. I don't always feel like I need to. I have this adoring woman. If your marriage is good, there can be a problem with idolatry. To have a person fill the God-sized hole in that moment or in your heart and to go to a person with God-type expectations is to crush a person and to have great disappointment. Even when a marriage is bad, it's easy to say, man, everything would be better if only my marriage was okay, which isn't true. Christ is what makes things better. And what makes marriages okay. But this ability to have divided devotion in marriage, it's an ever-present danger. And even if our heart isn't divided, our interests certainly are. He talks about divided interests. And that's just true. I'm married. So let's just talk about me for a little bit. I'm married, happily so, to Katie Jane, the love of my life. 
I have two children. They are also awesome. But in terms of time to myself, my life is basically over. (laughs) They, I am in a black hole of obligation. It is a beautiful black hole. I love you. But it is true and very real. When I was married and I had time to myself, I had 100% of my unaccounted for time to myself. That free time was my time. It was free. I could think of something and do it as if by magic. When I got married, I had about 30% of that free time to myself. When you have kids, you, you maybe have 5% of that free time to yourself. Your interests are divided between sports and uh, whatever your kids are interested in and all your obligations that you, you, you have to do. This week, uh, on our Sabbath night, which is our free night, I had one hour to read Dante. And I took it. And it had been so long since in the middle of a day, I had an hour to read something spiritually rich for me. It just felt like such a gift. When you are single, you have the opportunity for an undivided attention. You can read that thing you wanted to read in the 100% of the time that's yours in your free time. Whether you want to be in this season or not, what I am convinced of is that Jesus is inviting you in your single season to a unique season of devotion to Him. God wants to bring you deeper into his heart. And you have a freedom to respond to what he's doing in your life in a way that a married person doesn't. I cannot respond to every inclination I have. I cannot responsibly do everything that I wanted to once do for the Lord. There are many things I will never do because I'm, there are some things I get to do because I'm married. There are some things I will never do now because I'm married. But now Christ can have your full attention. And when you bring God-sized need to a human being, you crush them. But when you bring a God-sized question, a God-sized need to God... He handles it. He holds it. He fills it. So I don't know where you are, just speaking to the single folks, I don't know where you are in in your journey. I don't know what your uh, time being a single is, is all about. I'd love to hear about that. But I know what it's not. And it is not an extended adolescence. It is not a time when you just allow ambition to push off marriage and kids so you can get ahead in your own career. 
It's not even primarily a preparatory phase for getting your act together so you can get married or so you can do this or that. The primary thing that God is doing in this season, whether it is temporary or whether it is permanent, is he is securing your undivided devotion to him. And he deeply desires you. God desires you more than you know. Why does Paul commend a single life? Because it increases our focus on our deepest pleasure and purpose. Our deepest pleasure and purpose is God and his kingdom. For Paul, God was pleasurable to him. Fulfilling, tasty, happy, satisfying. And so he says those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you from that. Because it reduces anxiety and because it focuses our attention on our deepest pleasure and truest good of life, I wish some of you would remain as I am. And so we don't find fulfillment in marriage, in family. We don't find fulfillment in singleness. We find fulfillment in Christ. And the best marriages point off of the marriage and onto him. The best parenting points off of itself and on to him. And the, the life of the single person at its best points off of itself and on to the goodness of God. So as we close, how does that look? The Bible gives us a few examples. Maybe your life will mirror John the Baptist. You will never marry And you will have a particular calling with God. And you will serve him in your generation in such a unique and powerful way that you could never do if you were married. And you will have married friends. And you will love married people. But in you, in your own unique way, you will be a voice in the wilderness saying, make way for the Lord. Or, Maybe your life will mirror Joseph in the Old Testament, who in his younger life, into his 20s and 30s, he was single and his life was a mess. Family wreckage. Family breakdown. A man mistreated, misused. Choosing celibacy in a way that it cost him. And then in his older years, he gets married. But that's not what we remember him for. It's not like when we think of the story of Joseph, we think, okay, betrayed by his brothers, sold into slavery, unjustly put into prison, did a whole bunch of cool things in Egypt, and then finally he got married. You know, when you see, when you think of the life of Joseph, isn't his marriage you think of? What you think of is, how in the world did his faith get him through all those dark places? Look at how the Lord took all of this wreckage and made something beautiful and profound out of it. So maybe you will get married in later, older years. But maybe the first half of your life is to become a testimony to the grace of God. Because it's one thing for a For a married person to tell a single person, the Lord will be with you. 
But it's another thing to stand face to face with Joseph who's been through that or a 55-year-old single celibate man with no children looking at you and saying you can have fulfillment and purpose. The Lord is with you and every, every evil thing that Satan has meant to harm you, the Lord will work for your good. I've seen it. It's in my life. God has overruled every hard thing, every dark thing, and has turned it for good. Maybe that, maybe you have a Joseph testimony. What about the, the widows and widowers in our midst? The Bible's filled with women and men in these spaces. I think about Ruth, Naomi, Jesus' own mother, so blessed, Mary, who was widowed. Spending time, living your life, and there's so much space in your empty bed. Sometimes too much quiet in your living room. And the scripture through these testimonies says not all is lost. You have a future and a present and a powerful hope. And through all your tears of being a widow or a widower, you will live. And your deepest, truest pleasures will not die. In Christ, you will see your loved one again. And that glad reunion won't just be seeing your loved one again, but will be seeing the one who overshadows both of you with his love. And until then, know that you have purpose. I think about Anna, the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher. Do you know the story of Anna in Luke chapter 2? She was a woman married for seven years. And then her husband died. She lived until she was 82. You know what she did every day? Those 60 years of life and widowhood? It said that she went to the temple and she was with the Lord day and night, pleading with him for the redemption of Israel. And she was granted with witnessing the, the circumcision, the, the, uh, the appointment of Christ. How was her life fulfilled? She gave her life in complete devotion to the Lord who satisfied her heart. And so to the singles among us, I guess I just want to give a vision for singleness beyond that this is something that you're just being subjected to that you're a victim of circumstance to have a vision of possibility if these unmarried moments in your life are not spent in passionate pursuit of your maker they will often be spent in aimlessness and frustration And I'm not saying that there won't be frustration. And I'm not saying that you can't long for marriage. It's a good thing to to long for. But I am saying in this season in your life, there is an opportunity to seek and serve. To seek the Lord. Do you have a question for him? Do you have a doubt that you're wrestling with? Why not take a year of your life devoted to reading about that thing? Praying about that thing? Studying, becoming a master scholar in that thing. Why not take the pilgrimage you've always wanted to, to the spiritual place, to have time of silence and contemplation 
before the Lord. Why not make the goal of your life attending always to the presence of Jesus? Seek the Lord. Serve the Lord. There are so many in our midst who serve well in this church as single people. This church wouldn't exist without them. I think about Laura Carlene, who's given her life to serving college students. And now for a season of her life is teaching discipleship at Grace Chapel as an intern. She told a wonderful story this week. She said, I don't know if I'll ever take wedding vows, but when I took my vows to become a member of this church, I considered them like a wedding vow. That is profound. I think about Allie Grummer serving in our youth as well as building her business. Ingrid, a widow who faithfully mans the chair during our neighbor hours, giving a maternal presence to people who dearly need it. Jonathan Gregory, in his retirement as a single and celibate man, working for our, to organize our men's ministry and discipleship. Jenna Qualset, an artist, giving her time and effort to create our new logo and promotional materials for, like, no money. Naomi Proctor, uh, prayerfully considering a life in missions. I don't know if she'll follow that call, but she's faithful enough to ask, as a young single person, could that be a call on my life? I'm just saying, it's very clear to me that the church needs you. It's not the only thing that needs you. The world needs you. But the church needs you. It needs your gifts. It needs your leadership. It needs your passion. It needs your talent. The world needs you to bring your gifts to its brokenness, your creativity to its problems. We need the single people on this earth with a, a, with a vision for singleness that includes the glory of God and the good of his people. And single people need a church with a vision for them. To be a place where, where single people can live in a culture. And they, man, they live in a culture where there is so much temptation. So much garbage in the, in, in the atmosphere about marriage and sex. We need to affirm singleness deeply. We need to recognize that there are single people in our small groups. And when we talk about our kids all the time, like at some point, you should stop. <laughs> there are people who are like, ah, okay, what else is going on? There's other stuff going on. I just, so, so fine, think about the, think, think about Widow Ruth and Widow Naomi in the Old Testament. Everything's stacked against them. How did they get through? Ruth said, I will be with you wherever you go. I will be like a husband to you, like a son to you. I am committed to you. And so, this is the last, last thing. (laughs) So this is the thought experiment I had. So in Colossians, there's all these couplets. Husbands, Live this way, wives live this way. Parents live this way, children live this way. And I was, my thought experiment went, what would, what would be the couplet for the single person? 
and who would be the partner. This is what I came up with. Singles, serve the church by your undivided devotion to the Lord. Church, make sure that being single never means being alone. Let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and that you love us and that you care for us deeply. And um, may it do its work in our lives. May we be a church family that affirms uh, in the ways that your word does uh, the single life and all of its opportunities. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen.